Good morning. Yeah, okay, so uh, today it's the beginning of a new book, the book of Ephesians. Uh, so if you've got a Bible or if you want to grab one out of the pew or use your phone or whatever it is you're going to use to get to the Word of God uh, before you this morning, go ahead and head that way. It's, uh, you'll find it in the New Testament. It's after the four Gospels. It's after Acts and Romans. It's after both Corinthians, the book of Galatians, and then you run right into Ephesians. So you can find it there. Uh, let me give you a little background as you're finding your way there. This is an, uh, Ephesians is an epistle meaning this is a, a letter that has been written. It is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's written it uh, to the churches that are in the city of Ephesus and around the city of Ephesus. And if you were here when uh, we preached through the book of Acts last year, uh, you might remember in Acts 19 when Paul, on his missionary journey, actually visits the city of Ephesus for the first time. Uh, and while he was there, there was a um, blacksmith by the name of Demetrius who stirred up this big riot uh, because as Paul and others were preaching the gospel and people were coming to faith in Christ, they stopped buying these little trinkets, which were idols of these, uh, the, god, uh, or the, the goddess of Artemis. And so these local businesses suffered, and then because of this riot and this threat to Paul's life, he had to actually leave the city and, and flee for his life. And so uh, this is the place that he's writing to at this point. Uh, Ephesus is a very large city. I know it's not one that we think of on the, on the global scale today, but this was one of the, uh, the fourth or the fifth largest city in the world at the time. And the culture there was very corrupt. In fact, it challenged the city of, of Corinth as the sin city of the era. Uh, no offense to your Las Vegas, Jordan. Uh, and so, <clears throat> you win. Uh, <laughs> so people would, would come from all over the world, and they would come because they wanted to visit this uh, temple of Artemis. It was a place to come and worship this, um, this idol, this false god. And people, while they were there, would visit the temple prostitutes uh, that were associated with the temple. And so what you have is this culture that has actually sanctioned immorality uh, as part of what they were doing. It was also a very wealthy culture that he's writing to. And as a result, there was a lot of materialism. There was a lot of greed. And so even as we look at this ancient city, uh, we it doesn't take long before you realize the same basic idols that are at play then are at play in a lot of our, our culture today. Sensuality, materialism, this general seeking after satisfaction in just about all the wrong places. Um, and so that's what we're dealing here. And so while Paul's in Rome and he's in prison, it's about 60 AD to put that on a, a timeline, if you were. Um, he writes this and he writes it to shepherd the church in Ephesus <clears throat> to teach them how to live as Christians in the midst of a uh, corrupt culture. And so that's what we're going to do today as we open it up. We're going to begin uh, just starting off with the first six verses. So Ephesians 1, verse 6, follow along if you got it before you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of, the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father God, it is a joy to begin a new book from your Holy Scripture today. Thank you for preserving this revelation over the past 2,000 years. 
God, we thank you. We ask that you give us faith to receive it properly as your word this morning, because it is your word. Lord, may we not bend it to our imaginations, but rather make us willing to shape our view of you from your self-revelation to us. May we walk away today with humility at the hugeness of your unmerited grace that you have poured out upon us. Ah, It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I'll do things a little different today. Typically, when I preach a sermon, I uh, go about it like like peeling an orange. Once you have the cover off, dividing it into those little wedges that uh, your moms would bring to soccer practice as a kid, and each wedge would be kind of self-contained with the pulp and the juice in it, and it would be consumed one by one until the entire portion has been consumed, and that's typically how we'll do it, going verse, 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 verse. Uh, Today, I want to do it a little different. Uh, I want to approach the patch still like an orange, but instead... Uh, squeezing an orange, juicing an orange, whereas you, you give it that one big squeeze and then you kind of turn it and squeeze it again a little more and then you, you pinch the last little bit until you can get the last drops out of it. And so I want to approach it that way. Uh, and that means it's going to be a little different outline than typical. If you like your outline in advance, I'll tell you it's uh, number one, union with Christ. If that doesn't mean anything to you, it will. Uh, two, predestination. And three, calling. And uh, how to put that together two weeks ago, it'd be in your outline, your bulletin. Uh, but anyway, let's start with union with Christ. Huge topic. Uh, three times in our passage here, we, we see this concept of what it means to be united with Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we read, blessed, uh, or blessed us in Christ. Verse 4, chose us in Him. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. These are all connected phrases, speaking of the way we are connected to Jesus. And by the time we finish this book of Ephesians, which is not a very long book if you look at it, six chapters, a couple pages, uh, we're going to see 40 references to our union with Christ and what that means. And so this union that we have with Christ occurs uh, when our faith is in Jesus Christ. And that means that we are, we are united to the one, uh, the one who, as we see in verse 21 in this, and you can look ahead if you want to, this chapter has all rule, the one who has all authority, the one who has all power, and the one who has all dominion. It's a big deal. Uh, and yet, we might hear that and think, well, so what? What does that really mean? So let me give you a few reasons. For one, uh, you and I are not the Savior, but we share in the honor and the place, uh, the place of honor uh, that Christ shares because we are united to him. Um, you know, just like being married to the Queen of England comes with honor and, and blessings, so does our union with Christ. For instance, uh, because of our union with Christ, we have uh, our very real, very genuine guilt actually removed. Um, see, what justly shames us What properly condemns us is no longer held against us. And knowing that to be true, it really makes facing all the different obstacles in life a lot easier. And I think uh, you really have to embrace what that means for you to understand it. And and here's what I mean. You may feel like you are failing in areas of life. You may struggle with an ongoing battle against a particular sin in your life. But your eternal security is, is secure on the basis of who you are united to and not on the basis of who you are. That's huge. The eternal security that we have is the second wonderful blessing, right, Um, that we have by virtue of this union with Christ, meaning that our security is absolutely permanent. Uh, 
Paul in Romans 8, 38 through 39, often quoted uh, there, he writes, he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason he can say that is because of this union with Christ. I mean, do you understand what that means? There is this unbreakable bond between Christians and their God, the God of the universe. And you've got to know this in in your mind. And I say that because uh, some days you're not going to feel that. Some days you're not going to see that as your experience. And so we've got to know that at a much deeper level. See, there's this this phrase that explains to us this this certainty of our place in the kingdom of God and and yet are not experiencing the benefits of it completely. Uh, The phrase is this weird sounding already, not yet. And, And as Christians, we already know what it means to be safe in the arms of Jesus. And at the same time, it's not fully experienced just yet. Um... I find illustration helpful in understanding almost everything in the world. Um, and the best illustration I've ever heard on this goes something like this. Imagine you're on a hike with your family, and you enjoy a few hours in the woods, seeing birds and creatures of all sorts, and yet you find here comes the sun sinking, setting, quicker than you expected. In the dark, you, if you've ever been outside, you've seen this. In the dark, you lose all sense of direction. You can no longer see the trail you came in on, and you begin to hear the howls of those creepy animals, right? Off in the desert. You know, what was a wonderful walk can become a scary walk real quick. And having traveled the direction that you hoped the cabin was in, you suddenly feel turned around and lost. And yet, then suddenly through the woods, you can see the light of your cabin. You can see it. So even though you are not yet standing in the warmth of that cabin yet, the light that you see gives relief. That rest. You know, that as though you were already standing secure inside. You see, seeing the cabin has brought about peace that a few minutes earlier was simply fear in your life. That's our life as, as Christians. Our, our lives are like the family in the woods. We, we face lost jobs. We face broken hearts. And we sin and we're sinned against. Disease and suffering of all sorts are around us. They invade our lives. But in the gospel, in our union with Christ, we find certainly and we find this peace already even though it hasn't been fully realized yet. And so now we can rest knowing that our our place in the eternal kingdom of God is secure. I'll give you another aspect of our union with Christ, uh, another blessing, and it's this, that absolutely nothing can make us more united to Christ or less united to Christ. See, sin will affect our communion with Christ, But it does not ever sever our union with Christ. I mean, think of marriage as a picture of this. Your relation, or the relationship between a husband and wife can be close, it can be distant, um, based on how they relate to each other. It can be strong, it can be weak. Uh, That's communing with each other, the way that they interact, communion. Now, how we interact with another person, just like how we relate to God, can be strained because of our pursuit of sin instead of that relationship. That's certainly true in our relationship with God as well. That's communion, as I said. But no matter how wonderful or how frustrating a marriage relationship it is at any given point, at no point does anyone become less married or more married to their spouse. If you're married, you're married, not more or less. And that's what our union with Christ is like. It's a sure thing. It is a constant thing. He's not more or less your Savior based on those things. 
And so rather, you know, because of our union with Christ, he is fully and completely our Savior at any given moment, even those moments when you find yourself feeling very distant from God. I was reading a guy named Jared Wilson this last week, and you know, I found it quite profound when he said, uh, every other religion is a treadmill of hoop jumping. You can picture that. I am in God's good graces. I'm, I'm out of God's good graces. You know, I'm in again. I'm out again. He loves me. He doesn't. But that's not Christianity. And this is the one exception in the world. You see, we have a very real, we have a very uh, eternal security on the basis of our being united to Christ. The, the love that God has for Jesus, his eternal son, that we receive by virtue of our union with Christ. And we also receive his righteousness by our union with Christ. You see, we're, we're, we're truly seen by our Heavenly Father as, as holy and righteous. Not as some trick as if he doesn't know this. But that's how he views us be, because we are in union, union with Jesus who is holy and righteous himself. And this should give us joy. Real, genuine joy to, to know how our Heavenly Father views us. And joy to know that we are no longer enslaved to this, this master sin who previously enslaved us. Which means when we read in, in verse 2 here in our passage, grace to you and, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not a call to peace based on the world around us being peaceful. Right? We all want that. We want to see that. We want experience. But, but the peace we're talking about here is, is a call to peace that is even greater because it's based on something greater, something found nowhere else in, in the world. This is a call to peace on the basis of our sure union with Christ and the gospel that we have believed. So much can be said of the, the blessing of our, our union with Christ. In fact, there are whole seminary classes based on this concept. Um, but we're going to move on. <clears throat> we're going to move on to the topic of predestination, right? Uh, after politics, everyone's extended family mealtime discussion topic. I still remember uh, our family, we went out to eat in Houston. There's tons of seafood restaurants. And we went out to this restaurant with my uh, grandma was there after uh, I was accepted into Westminster Seminary. And my, my grandma, who was a devout Methodist, um, one of my favorite relatives ever, she's now with the Lord, uh, but she was really excited to hear I was going to seminary. This was great news to her. Uh, and then she learned that I was going to a Presbyterian seminary, at which point in that grandma rage, she said, Presbyterian? Presbyterians believe in predestination. And, and I, being the wonderful grandson I am, responded kindly and calmly, so do I. <laughs> and so should you. The actual word predestination's in the Bible. And, and then she kind of just, just sat back, and it was a really awkward meal from that point on. Um, I do remember, for the first time in my life, enjoying a soft-shell crab that was deep-fried that day. Wonderful. Um, but the rest of it was really awkward. Uh, and it's true, you know, both, both the word and the theology of the word is taught in Scripture. So related to this you know, idea of election, you might have heard it called at times, it's, it's often called sovereign grace. Sovereign because God is in absolute control and grace because we've been given what we simply do not deserve. Namely, forgiveness and adoption and into the family of God. And so, you know, not every Christian believes what is taught here, and that's okay. Um, affirming this doctrine is not necessary for your faith in Christ to be genuine. But it is something that God has revealed about himself 
to his people in his word. And in my experiencing this or experience learning this has served to, to grow my view of God, to grow my view of God's bigness and his power and especially God's love and his grace for me as a sinner. And so now every word in, in scripture we either come to and we receive as the word of God or we reject it as something else. Uh, Certainly anyone who calls himself a Christian knows that they should receive it all, right? And because of that, we often find ourselves doing some sort of fuzzy math to make it fit our preconceived ideas about who God is. And so then the question is, what, what's clearly taught in this passage regarding predestination? Well, in, in verse 1, we, we read of God, He chose us. And that verse continues to say he chose us before the world began. And then in verse 5, we, we see the term again as it reads, uh, he predestined us. Also in verse 5, we learn that God adopted us, which we'll come back to a bit. Uh, see, if we're, if we're honest, this really isn't a difficult passage to understand, not, a, not at a real basic level. Um, it, it tells us that before we chose God, God chose us. You know, because you weren't around before the world began when he did this. And, and while it's not difficult to understand, it is very difficult for many to believe, many to accept. Uh, there's this tendency when you come to this to, to kind of twist it, to um, twist what we learn or to wash it away in, in, in some way as irrelevant. And I, I've shared this before, but as a, a young Believer, I came to a verse, this verse, and I wish I could just make it go away. I wanted to, to, to chop it up, uh, you know, like Jefferson notoriously did. But uh, when I also had, you know, eventually I learned I would also have to take out all of Romans 9 and many other passages in Scripture. And the reason that this was so offensive to me was that it seemed to encroach upon my autonomy. Um, it was a, a threat to my free will, and I was quick to listen to absolutely any alternative explanation of this uh, to make it make sense to what I needed it to make to say. See, one of the, the first ways I learned to negate what we just read here is, um, was to say that all this really means is that God looks down the corridor of time, something like a hallway, and, and he sees who will choose him, and those are the ones he predestined. Um, and I thought, wow, that is a wonderful, wonderful answer. I feel good about that. And then slowly I began to see there is absolutely nothing in Scripture to support that idea. It was merely wishful thinking of those who wished to limit the sovereignty of God. You know, other people like me at the time who were afraid of their autonomy being under attack. In fact, uh, this view is the exact opposite of what God reveals about himself in this passage. Uh, the second way I, of negating this I learned was to say, well, because God loves us so much, he gave us free will to decide if we would choose him or not. And I thought, yeah, that makes good sense. That's exactly how things should work. That makes perfect sense. Um, until eventually it, it seemed quite off, uh, particularly in this passage we have before us today. In fact, our passage tells us the exact opposite to be true. Don't merely take my word for you. I, you know, I asked you to open it, and this is one of those moments. Why? Look at it with me. Uh, the end of verse 4, just as verse 4 kind of smashes into to verse 5, it says, In love, he predestined us for adoption. Uh, God loves us so much 
that he gave us free will. No. Um, this, this is God's word before us. And, and it says he loves you so much that he wasn't going to leave you in your sin. But he had predestined you for adoption. See, that adoption brings in this image of parenting. And parenting is a beautiful image of this. Think about uh, even mere human parenting. You know, no truly loving parent says to their child, I love you so much that you get to decide what we're going to eat for dinner every night. Um, you know, even though you're six years old, you know, if you want to drive the car today, uh, I love you so much that I will not intervene. Go have a great time. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense for a parent to say, in love, I have let you decide today if we are going to put away the Nerf swords and use real sharp metal swords in our fight. Why not? Uh, you know, we make all sorts of decisions for our children in love. In love, we decided that our children would have swim lessons so they would know how to swim. In love, we decided they would be educated and learn how to read. Uh, in love, we decided that their meals would include items that weren't made completely of sugar. Um, those kind of things. And, and that's more to the point of predestination here. This, you know, it's, it's don't panic that somehow your free will has been violated. Rather, absolutely marvel at how deeply God has loved you in the gospel. And, and that it has nothing to do with you having earned that love. And, in fact, the whole point of telling us here is not so we can win theological arguments, right? It's, it's here, you know, that God chose us before creation so that we understand that God chose to love us long before we could have done anything to have merited his love. Anything. So I told you, we'd, we'd come back to the idea of adoption here as we see in verse 5. Uh, adoption, this beautiful picture of, of predestination. I, I think of all the stories I, I've heard. I know of, of people choosing a child and going to a faraway country to get this child and they pay whatever cost it takes. Um, and then they bring this child home and they bring them to their home. You know, these children don't get to choose their parents. They didn't even get to approve their, their parents. You know, these children didn't say, eh, you know, these people are Packers fans and I don't want to wear cheese on my head. I'll wait for you know, the next one. No one asked them that question. Now, they, these babies have no say. They are taken and they are given a home and a family and a family name and inheritance. And, and, and that's adoption with insufficient human parents, not God. In this passage, adoption is about God bringing sinners into his family. You know, if this were the only passage on predestination, it would certainly be enough for us to believe it. But as it is, there are many other passages, of course, all of Romans 9. And I encourage you, you know, go and read that today. It will drive you nuts. It took me forever to get over that passage. Um, but for the sake of time, I'll just give you two. First uh, Peter 1 Peter 1.3. You know, even though the word predestination is lacking here in this passage, it's clear that God is the catalyst, the cause of our redemption. It reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in a living hope. Now, this, this concept isn't new to the New Testament either. Um, the nation of Israel with the people of God. Deuteronomy 7, 6, we read, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. And there are so many other passages that build and build on this. And so I, I'll tell you, if this is the first time you've ever 
thought of predestination, I know it can feel like getting hit across the face with a baseball bat. Um, you know, it, it leads to these honest questions like if, if God chose me before the creation of the world, then, then why do I have the experience of choosing God? Are you saying that's not real? No. I mean, you, you certainly did come to the conclusion that the gospel is real in your life, that Jesus really is God, the Son of God, that he dwelt among huma humanity, that he died on a Roman cross and was brought back to life three days later, ascending into heaven and sits today at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's, that's a real experience. You know, coming to that conclusion is a real experience, and I am not interested in taking that away from you or myself. But look, God saved you. God chose you. God bought you. God redeemed you. He moved you to move towards him in faith. You know, that's why our comfort and our security is not something as finicky as my choice at any given moment. Rather, praise God for the rock-solid certainty of his will, not, not the flip-flopping certainty of my pathetic will. Now, if you've known this doctrine for some time, I, I want to remind you to, to not be content with being theologically correct on this. Um, don't let it become a, a point of pride. You know, rather let the truth of what this teaches soak, soak into your heart and, and sprout up into this, uh, grow into this humble awe at how deeply the Lord God has loved you. Because this, this doctrine is intended to give us an amazing sense of security as we dwell in Christ with humility and, and compassion for others. So let me, let me add this. this. This passage doesn't answer all the questions that you're going to have about this topic. And I, and I don't want to pretend I have all the answers because I don't. And this, this doesn't tell us why God has chosen to redeem you and given faith to you before the foundation of the world, and yet he did not do the same for someone else, someone you might care deeply about. You know, when you inevitably ask yourself this question, why, why me, God? As you continue to think about it, and you keep asking, you know, I, I know it's not because I'm righteous, I'm not. So why? Why me? You know, I, I can't give you an answer, as we can only know to the degree that God has actually revealed this himself. And so while I do wish that I had an answer to that, I really do, uh, all I can say is that in what we see here in verses 5 and 6, right, that, that God's choice of some is according to the purposes of his will. Yeah, but why? I don't know. According to the purposes of his will. And for the praise of his glorious grace. See, his grace should lead to our praise for him. The result of our pre being predestined to adoption, the result of our being made true children of God is that we'll praise God for his glorious grace. That's why in verse 6, we read there, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And you might notice the word beloved there has a capital B. That's because it's a reference to our Savior Christ. And so then, while the, the idea of predestination gets most of the attention in this passage, there's also this beautiful statement um, that like a middle child uh, who is so notoriously overlooked as it sits between these, these two predestination statements, I want you to see it though, um, it, it's a phrase that gives the purpose of our predestination. There in verse 4, that we be holy and blameless before him. So you didn't miss that as we start looking at this other stuff. God's redeeming you was in love, but it was also, uh, but it also has a hope for you now. 
You see, God has not only saved us from something, he has also saved us to something, to a new way of life as a child of God. And like even human parents, God desires for his children to be satisfied, uh, to experience peace, to live joyful lives as, as we reflect the glory of our Heavenly Father back, right? Um, what a beautiful purpose. So one more thing I want to show you from this, from this and it's from the greeting. Uh, this is the calling aspect, if you've got your outline. Paul understands his calling well. And again, that's a, a very quick turn from predestination to calling. But I want you to see this. Uh, Paul understands his calling well. He, we see this in verse 1. He writes that he is an apostle by the will of God. And he was made an apostle when he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. His, his point here, though, is that, he was, uh, is that it was the will of God for him to be so. And this knowledge of God's will for him here gives him confidence on the Lord's call on his life. And so I, I want to bring us back to this, even though it's in the introduction, because I want to ask each of you this question. Do you understand your calling well? Not as an apostle. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. But, but do you understand your calling as a child of God, as a Christian, as a disciple, and, and as a saint? Oh, that we would have such a confidence in our calling as Christians as we see Paul has here. See, from, from time to time, it is worth just, just saying in your mind if people around you, right, likely, or saying it out loud if you're in a place where you can, you know, I am a disciple of Christ by the will of God. I am a, a saint of the Lord's by, by the will of God Almighty. Remember, being, being saints is, is part of our identity. That's, that's who Paul is addressing this letter to. You remember uh, there in verse 1, to the saints. It, it, it's true that uh, in Catholicism, uh, has, has honestly messed up our view of, of what this term saints means. It's not super holy Christians who have accomplished many good works. It's, it's more simple than that. It's Christians. Um, the word saints means called out ones or those who have been set apart for a specific purpose. And um, not set apart from other Christians, but rather set apart from the whole of humanity in general, from those who are not disciples of God, those who are not children adopted into his family. And so every person is part of God's creation, but uh, not every person is part of God's family. Uh, that's why there's this unique bond between Christians. Uh, we're truly brothers and sisters in a family that is eternal. Um, so let me bring this all to a close. Uh, see, the beautiful news of the gospel is that anyone can be declared righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that also means that we can be declared righteous apart from our greatest accomplishments. And that means we can be declared righteous apart or in the face of our worst and ongoing failures. So let me give you a picture of this. A couple of years ago, uh, as a family, we went out on a hike on the Kanza Prairie. It is just south of town. If you haven't done that, you're new here. Take some time to do it. I recommend the spring, not the winter. Um, but if you haven't been there, it really is. It's beautiful, but that's not why I mentioned it. I mentioned it because of this. We, we hiked, and we went on the two-and-a-half-mile loop, and Berkeley was just about five at the time. And so she made it about halfway, um, complaining about a quarter of the way, but really kind of giving up about halfway. Uh, and just absolutely exhausted. And so, I, you know that thing parents do, you pick them up and you stick them on your shoulders. And it seemed like a great idea. And then the next thing I know, there's like this death grip on my head. 
Um, I can't see, I can feel, feel anything. And, and the whole while I have this tight grip on her legs, um, holding her on my shoulders, but she has absolutely no confidence in this. And, and so she won't let go of my head. And to be honest, I was annoyed by this. But uh, you know, every time we moved one way or another, I'd be saying, stop grabbing my face. I can't see, we're gonna die. Uh, <clears throat> so we couldn't function. Uh, eventually I stopped and I told her, Berkeley, try to climb off my shoulders, try to get down. And eventually she, she tried and she could barely move because I am so much stronger than that little girl. You know, she had to, she had to learn that she wasn't secure on my shoulders because of her grip on my face. She was secure on my shoulders because of my grip on her. Child of God, you and I need to know the same is, is true with us, with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Our, our security is not on the basis of our grip on God, but on the basis of His unbreakable grip upon us. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of everything we see in this passage. Let's pray.